Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm John Marzalek, a host for the podcast Queer Voices, a LGBTQ plus studies channel podcast of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking to John D'Amelio about his new book, Memories of a Gay Catholic Boyhood, Coming of Age in the 60s. John D'Amelio is Emeritus Professor of History and Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and the author of many books, including The World Turned, Essays on Gay History, Politics, and Culture, also published by Duke University Press, Lost Prophet, The Life and Times of Bayard Rustin, Sexual Politics, Sexual Communities, The Making of a Homosexual Minority in the United States, 1940 through 1970, and Queer Legacies, Stories from Chicago's LGBTQ Archives. He is Guggenheim Fellow and a National Endowment of the Humanities Fellow, and he was finalist for the National Book Award for Lost Profit, which won the American Library Association Stonewall Book Award for Nonfiction. D'Amelio was inducted into the Chicago LGBT Hall of Fame in 2005 and was named Chicagoian of the Year by the Chicago Tribune in 2004. He lives in Chicago. Dr. D'Amelio's memoir, just released by Duke University Press, is his coming-of-age story in which he takes readers from his working-class Bronx neighborhood to an elite Jesuit high school in Manhattan, to Columbia University, and the political and social upheavals of the late 1960s. He shares his personal experiences of growing up in a conservative, tight-knit, multi-generational family, how he went from considering entering the priesthood to losing his faith and coming to terms with his same-sex desires. Throughout, D'Amelio outlines his complicated relationship with his family while showing how his passion for activism influenced his decision to use research, writing, and teaching to build a strong LGBTQ movement. This is not just John D'Amelio's personal story. It opens a window in how the conformist baby boom decade of the 1950s transformed into the tumultuous years of radical social movements and widespread protests during the 1960s. It is a story of what happens when different cultures and values collide and the tensions and possibilities for personal discovery and growth that emerge. Intimate and honest, D'Amelio's story will resonate with anyone who has had to chart their own path in a world they did not expect to find. John, thanks so much for joining us today. It's just an honor to talk to you. Will, and thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to have this opportunity. Wonderful. Um, One thing that I didn't mention in the introduction is that your work over the years helped impact the 2003 Supreme Court decision in Lawrence versus Texas, overturning state sodomy laws. And I I just wondered if you could talk about, you know, how, how did your work do that? Well, sure. Um, one, one of the uh, other books that I've written that I co-authored with Estelle Friedman is called Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America. And one of the things that that book traces is how expressions of same-sex love and sexuality have changed dramatically over the centuries. And to this point in particular, that when the so-called sodomy laws prohibiting sex between men were first enacted during the colonial period, there weren't people who lived what we today might call gay lives. And so 
legislators were condemning an act. But what we trace is the emergence of identities over the centuries. And the Supreme Court justices uh, saw that and, in effect, realized, well, sodomy laws and the present don't really work together because now there are people who are gay or lesbian or bisexual, and we can't condemn and and criminalize their ability to have intimate relationships. And so that work was cited uh, in the major decision of Lawrence versus Texas. Just such a great honor. That must have been thrilling for you to to know that you were cited in a Supreme Court decision. Oh, it was unbelievable. (laughs) I can't can't even imagine. Yes, yes. So, um, you know, following up from that, after writing so many books over the years, what led you to write your own memoir? Well, it it came together in two different sorts of ways. Uh, The first is that in 2004, on a very personal level, I had open heart surgery. And the night before lying in the hospital, wondering, will I survive this? I just found myself flooded with early memories uh, from my childhood, you know, family, neighborhood, friends, uh, the teachers who had had a profound impact on me. And after the surgery was successful and I'm home recovering, I just started randomly in my free time to write about important, emotionally important moments or events in my early life. And then, you know, at a certain point, I had quite a number of these. And what came to mind is that also during these years, I mean, for decades, I've been teaching college U.S. history courses, Uh. and especially courses on post-1945 America in the 1960s. And one of the things that unmistakably came through in my teaching experience is that the reading that undergraduates most enjoyed were memoirs, Ah. not memoirs of rich people and presidents and generals, but memoirs of ordinary individuals whose lives somehow intersected with the big events of Ah. their times so that the students could identify with the history themselves. And so I thought, well, I have all of these pieces written. Let me write a continuous narrative that will tell the story of the 50s and 60s from the point of a kid who grew up in this Italian immigrant family and did well in school and suddenly found himself protesting in the streets in the 60s. Wow. Wow, that that makes a lot of sense. I, as I was reading, as I was reading your book, just like you said, I can imagine myself almost in your shoes as you were, you know, struggling with, for instance, do I participate in these protests or not? Yes, right. That's, and uh, really, as I think I might describe myself at this in this way at some point in the book, in a lot of situations, I was simply one more face in the crowd. You know, yeah. I was one among thousands or tens of thousands of people who were protesting. But that's part of what the 60s is about, is the way all of these individuals just came together and rose up. Uh, so it really brings history to life when you, when I you hope tell your so. own story. I, I, I think hope it did. so. Yeah, I think it did. Thank you. Um, yeah. So 
I wonder what it was like for you to write a memoir compared to all your writings as a historian. I mean, you're writing a history of your own life. Yes. Well, <laughs> that is a very good question because, and one of the ways in which I'll describe the difference is that, you know, if I'm writing a history book, like a biography of another person like Bayard Rustin or a history of early LGBT activism, well, if you read my book and you don't like it, well, that just means you don't agree with my interpretation of mm. these events or they don't they don't seem important. But if you don't like my memoir, does that mean you don't like me? It's, it's, it feels <laughs> yeah. so much more personal. Oh, and yeah. I'm putting myself out there in a completely different way. But on the other hand, I just, I don't know. I just, at a certain point, I felt I want to tell this story. I want, I want to write this. So, you know, I'll find out if people don't like me. <laughs> I'll be surprised if they don't. But I th yeah, I, th I think it's good. Uh, yeah. So, you know, your memories are so clear of so many of the key events throughout your life. And I think you say in the, someplace in the beginning that you were able to access your personal archive of correspondence with friends, especially from the college years. And, you know, it made me think today people do searches through their email accounts to find their old correspondence. You know, how did, how extensive is this archive of yours and in, in what ways did you go about researching your life? Right. Well, one of the reasons why I saved things from the beginning of getting correspondence and yeah. my correspondence really did start in college because I had all of these really, really good high school friends, but we scattered to colleges all across the Northeast. And so uh -huh. in, in an effort to keep those relationships, I would write to them and they would write to me. And, you know, I joke about this, you know, in this day of texting, you know, like oh, three yeah. lines, yeah. but I would write let, handwritten letters that were six, wow. seven, eight pages long. Um, so anyway, and many of my friends would write back to me. Uh, and yeah. one of them, even uh, when, uh, he knew that I was writing a memoir. He also had saved all of my letters to him and he sent oh, them back wow. to me. So wow. I had not only my friends responding to the things that I was writing about, but I had a whole set of my own letters. And meanwhile, my mom, um, my mom, it's not that we, there was a lot to save, but my mom saved everything. Mm. I don't mean she was a hoarder, but she saved every photograph that was taken. Yeah. Uh, she would save special birthday and Christmas cards that people sent with, you know, long, you know, messages in them. Um, my dad, um, one of the things that was special about him is that he worked for a camera store. And so he had access to a movie camera back in the 50s, which was something that ordinarily our family could not afford. So yeah. we have lots of home movies that I still have because my mother saved them. And I could look oh. at all of these movies of, you know, the kids playing in the backyard of my grandmother's house and of a birthday party. So I have, I have a lot of material, um, photo albums, uh, home yeah. movies that have been um, converted to, well, uh, not, not, uh, you know, to DVDs and things like that. So they helped a lot. And then one last thing I'll say about this is that the historian in me who does yeah. research 
when writing about my Columbia years in college, I did reread, because it's accessible online, the campus newspaper for the four years that I was there so that I I would be able to sort of pinpoint particular events that I remembered, but I might not remember the context and things like that. Right, right. I, I remember a, a part of the book when you talk about your family um, coming together and watching those those um, home videos. So that must be interesting watching mm-hmm. them, you know, looking back now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I guess the other thing I, I was thinking as you were talking was I, there's a several places in the book where you talk about writing your friends at the seminary and you're, you're really unpacking all the conflict you have inside. And, and are those some of the letters you still have? Well, yes. The, and the, wow. partic- the particular friend that I mentioned who sent me all of his letters, was a f- all of my letters to him, was someone who was in the seminary at that point. And, wow. you know, we're still in touch. And he's been a Jesuit priest now for almost 50 years. All yes. this time, yeah, and it, it must be fascinating as adult to look back at the struggles, you know, of a of somebody who was just and a new adult, basically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, you know, one of the places you just you know you said earlier about memoirs help somebody almost be able to imagine themselves in history. One of the places that just really I could find myself putting myself in there was when you described your coming of age years, and and you you quoted it as being the worst time to be queer. And I wondered if you could talk about what it was like for you and other queer people coming of age during that time. Well, yes. I mean, so this is the mid-1960s now. And <laughs> there, are, there are not people who are, quote, out of the closet. There are no LGBTQ celebrities, sports stars, musicians, uh, cabinet officers, senators, and things like that. It was a completely invisible world when it did make it, information about this did make it into print, which was rare. It always was in the form of writing about perversion or deviates or criminals. And so there was, you know, in high school, when I started having these feelings toward about men for the first time, I had no sense of what I was feeling and what what it meant. And I think that's the way a lot of us lived and came of age in the 60s. And then to the degree that you succeeded in finding other gay men and this world of gay bars and meeting areas, you were running the risk of being arrested by the police because you were engaged in criminal behavior. And the police in a city like New York, where I grew up, they were arresting people all the time. So it it, it was nothing. I mean, I know there are still people, depending on their family background and where they live and religious belief and things like that, that still struggle and are facing oppression. But there were no high school queer straight alliances or campus LGBTQ centers in the 1960s. It was the worst time to be queer. Yeah, I, you know, um, I, I came out in the 80s and, and that, was, that was scary while I was in college. But then, I, you know, I thought about you talking about the cruising scene in New York and it made me wonder how it must have been so exciting, but also so frightening that you never knew if you could just be arrested. 
Well, well, that's exactly it. It was terrifying because you could never predict if the person that you locked eyes with as you were walking in an area that was known to be an area where gay men walked looking for others, you could never be sure if this would was in fact another gay man or a plainclothes police officer who would then arrest you for immoral activity. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you described some of those scenes so well. And, you know, several times I'd be reading and thinking, oh, my gosh, he's going to get something terrible is about to happen. <laughs> exactly. Story. Oh, my gosh. Uh, um, switching gears just a little bit. Um, I've heard so many stories over the years about former Catholics, you know, people I've talked to who later came out as queer. You know, in their struggle to reconcile the religious and sexual identities, and I can certainly relate as a gay man who also grew up Catholic. And I don't know, there seem to be these common themes among so many of us as the good boy that you talk about in, in your memoir. And it, it just made me wonder, is there something unique about growing up gay, growing up Catholic and gay versus other religions? Yeah, well, I, I do, in a sense, I don't really know the answer to that because, of course, I don't have that same experience, the experience of other religions so sure. directly. But certainly, I mean, I think one of the things that makes Catholicism relatively unique is this what we ha- this thing called confession that we have, oh, right, right. where we have this. You can call it an opportunity, but you can also recall, call it a requirement to go to church whenever you've committed a sin and confess your sin so that right. you will be saved from going to hell. And it, it puts into that experience of confession, puts into bold relief when those kids who are supposed to be good boys suddenly realize that they're not good boys. And Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I think Catholicism does create a very sharp divide between being good and being bad on the road to hell. Ah, wow. There's almost an archetype of the good boy, um, you know, the altar boy and Mm -hmm. all these different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There's a great scene. um, I guess scene would be the way to say it in your book when you, you know, you go to confession after, you know, having this guilt about having hooked up with somebody and you're, you're talking to this priest in a really low voice. And he says something like, why don't you, you know, if you want to meet people instead of going to the parks, why don't you come to our church socials? And I found myself laughing out loud. Yes. yeah, and, and I don't know if you want to tell the rest of the story because it's well, so funny. You know, when I started Columbia, and for the first time I was not in this all-Catholic environment, and I was actually becoming friends with fellow students who told me they didn't believe hell existed and they didn't believe in God, mm, and yeah. I was learning in some of my—I was reading philosophers who disproved the existence of God, and I suddenly found myself sort of— not going to church every Sunday for Mm. a stretch of time. And then, you know, the feelings came over me and I thought, no, I have to go to confession. And of course, because I hadn't gone to confession in four or five months, there was so much more to confess. And when I go to the confessional and I whisper to the priest that, however I put it, I would have said I had impure actions with other men And maybe I said, 
nine times or 11 times <laughs> or 14 yeah. times. And then, his, and you know, you're whispering because you don't want anybody in the church to hear you and you're humiliated by what you're confessing and the confessional is dark. And then he says to me, uh, well, where did you meet this man? And I said, well, father, it wasn't the same man each time. And he then says, well, where do you meet these men? And I say, well, on the street or in the park at night. And and that's when he then says, <laughs> why don't you come to our church social where you could meet other men? And it made me realize that in the dark and with my whispering, he assumed I was a young woman. And at that point, I say to I was just, I just said, father, you don't understand. I am a man. Yeah. And yeah. he then, you know, just he was probably embarrassed and humiliated as well and said, okay, here's your penance, one hour father, eight Hail Marys or whatever. I left the confessional and it was like, you know, the light bulb went off and I just said, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. And so that was the last time I ever went to confession. One of those key moments in your, just your whole identity development. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, when I read that, I wondered if there was just for a split second, like an incredulous look on your face thinking, is he really telling me to come to the church social? <laughs> <laughs> it may have happened very, yeah. very quickly, but oh, I realized, oh but you also realized quickly, no, he can't be meaning this. No, he can't this. be meaning that. Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> yes, this oh, is it, what is this, 1967? I yeah, don't think so. Yeah. No, 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 no way. That's right. Um, one of the things that struck me, just continuously in the book, and I, I'm sure this was intentional, was this whole theme of bringing order to chaos, um, you know, from honing your arguments as a champion debater in high school to considering becoming a priest to all these different jobs you did to earn money, even organizing the files in um, your father's company or Margaret Mead's library. And I just wondered, you know, how did that whole drive of bringing order to chaos help you as you work to reconcile your religious and sexual identities? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I'm not, I don't know how it did. I mean, one way in which it might have is that it, it, in a sense, forced me to abandon a situation of contradiction where on the one Uh hand, I'm driven to fulfill these sexual desires that I have that I don't know how to make go away. And on the other hand, if I do that, I'm, you know, on the road to hell and filled with conflicting emotions and shame and things like that. And so you could say that to sort of create order and coherence and unity, my choices were either to completely abandon being homosexual, which yeah. I didn't know how to do, or to say goodbye to the Catholic church so that there would be consistency and synchronicity in my life. Mm, That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Is is, is this something, this, this whole theme of, um, you know, finding order out of chaos, is this something that you've seen, you know, as you've studied other famous queer figures over the years? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. I would have to give more thought to that. Mm -hmm. It's never, that hasn't occurred to me, I'll say. Yeah. I mean, I know I could see that in myself and other people I've talked to, but it, it, yeah, I just, it's, it was really striking. Um, 
changing just changing gears a little bit, what was it like to work for Margaret Mead? You know, and, and when did you realize how amazing it was that you went to a party at her apartment and met her lover? Yes. Well, so you know, I needed to have part-time jobs for to have money for my budget in college. Uh, my dad was able with loans to pay for tuition, room, board, but anything else that I want and books, anything else that I wanted to do, I had to have the money for. So you know, I had one part-time job and needed another. And a friend told me about a job working with a PhD student on their dissertation. And so I got that as a proofreader for her. And then I did that well. And she said, you know, my dissertation advisor needs a part-time worker. And I said, oh, I would love another job. And she said, okay, you know, her, here's the information. Her name is Margaret Mead. <laughs> she works at the Museum of Natural History. Well, probably one of the most embarrassing moments of my life is that I knew about the Museum of Natural History because that's where all the dinosaurs, you know, yeah. relics were kept. But I had no idea who Margaret Mead was. Well, you and were young. I, yeah, well, but when I mentioned it to one of my friends, he practically <laughs> fell off his chair and oh, said, yeah, Margaret yeah. Mead? And then, of course, I learned that she was a world-famous pioneering anthropologist who spoke you know, before Congress and traveled the globe and things like that. Anyway, I ended up working for her part-time in her offices for three and a half years. And every Christmas, the entire her entire staff would be invited to her apartment for a little bit of a Christmas party. And she lived with another anthropologist named uh, Rhoda Metro. Mm. And of course, at the time, I had no idea that Margaret Mead and Rhoda Metro were intimate partners. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until years later that when I read a biography of Margaret Mead that I learned that that was the case. And who knows what a difference it might have made if at the time I realized, oh, Dr. Mead is in a lesbian relationship. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It just sounded like an amazing experience when I pictured you, you know, in her office and cataloging books and so on. It just blew my mind. Yeah. It was quite wonderful. I mean, and we didn't get a lot of opportunity to interact directly with Dr. Mead mm -hmm. because, again, she was famous and she was busy, mm -hmm. but we did what she wanted us to. <laughs> right, right, right. Um Talk about how reading Oscar Wilde's essay, De Profundis, I hope I pronounced that correctly, um, as you said, saved your life. Yeah. Well, I was. this was at the end of my f first year of college. And as we've talked, I, at that time, had abandoned my Catholicism and had come to, you know, in effect, realize, well, this is who I am, but I, you know really? How am I going to deal with this? And that summer, um, cruising the streets of Manhattan, I met someone named Luis who worked at the UN. Uh, he was a Cuban refugee. Uh, I went to his apartment. We made love. Mm. He invited me to stay for dinner. And 
for the first time, actually, in all of my sexual encounters with men, I felt comfortable talking to him about my life and the struggles I was experiencing, like how do you fully accept this and come to terms with it? And as I was leaving, he gave me this book by Oscar Wilde, uh, De Profundis. And, you know, I had heard of Oscar Wilde. I mean, he, you know, The Importance of Being Earnest was a play that yeah. lots of students in high school read. But anyway, that night I was at home. It was the summertime. But in the middle of the night, I just woke up and I went to the living room and opened the book and I read the entire book that night. Mm -hmm. It isn't long, but still I read the entire book. Mm -hmm. And there was something, and it's a book, it's written in effect almost as a letter to his lover. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was that relationship that got Oscar Wilde imprisoned. And Oscar Wilde just using the language of the Gospels, of Jesus, and of religion, just speaks proudly of his love for another man and says, you know, we must speak the truth. We must not tell lies. We must live out who we really are. And it was so powerful. And yeah. it's not like I came out of the closet and announced to my parents and every person I knew that I was gay, but At that point, I realized this is who I am. Mm. This is a good thing. And I will have to figure out how to have a life like this. And a few days later, you know, we talked earlier about all my correspondence. Mm -hmm. A few days later, I wrote for the first time to a couple of my friends in the seminary in which I effectively came out. I told them this is who I am and this is who I'm going to be. And and then that fall when we went back when I went back to school, I told my closest friends at Columbia that I was gay. And it really it was a turning point in my life. A huge cognitive shift going from considering oh. priesthood to, you know, saying this is who I am and this is this is not a bad thing. Yes. Yes. Very wow. much. How did your um how did your friends, especially your friends in the seminary, react when you told them this? Well, wonderfully, and you know, partly I think this is about the fact that the Jesuits themselves oh, are yeah. a very mm -hmm. liberal order committed to social change, so that the frame of mind that friends who would have gone into the Jesuits would have would be one of tolerance, acceptance, non-condemnation. And so they were appreciative of my telling the truth to them and of, you know, they in effect wished the best for me in trying to figure all of this out. There was no condemnation that mm. came from them at all. It was really wonderful. It's amazing. And then yeah. in the fall, when I came out to not many, but three or four of my closest friends at Columbia, every single one of them was accepting as well. I, I feel very, very lucky. Yeah, when you talk, you think about that time period, it's amazing. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a powerful scene in your book when you go in front of the draft board. I don't want to say too much so that 
I don't want to give away all the stories, but I just wondered what was it like to be to face the prospect back in those days of being drafted and then going through the stress of applying for conscientious objector status. Yes. Well, you know, the um in in the in that generation after World War II in what is referred to as the Cold War, um the United States really for the first time in its history had what is called a selective service system where every 18-year-old man, male, had to register uh, and therefore be potentially subject to the draft. Mm-hmm. And until the war in Southeast Asia really started in the 60s and the uh, President Johnson started, you know, the large numbers of American men were sent overseas, the draft really, it wasn't a big deal. A lot of people signed up for it, you know, volunteered. And if you were drafted, you would not be serving in war. But after 1965, that changed and many more people were being drafted and drafting, being drafted into the military meant that you would be engaged in wartime service. And so with a a large anti-war movement developing and with you know a politics among especially among the young opposing the war it was a big deal to you know you had to think how am i going to confront this and i i might have stopped going to church but through another an older student at Columbia, I made connections with a group of priests and nuns who Mm -hmm. were anti-war. And I joined an organization called the Catholic Peace Fellowship. I went on demonstrations Mm -hmm. and I realized, you know, I, I actually don't believe in the value of violence and could not engage in it myself and resolve to apply as a conscientious objector. Um, And I did, and it was very stressful, especially with my family. And at a certain point, I had the opportunity to go for my even though I wouldn't be drafted to go for my draft physical. And I thought, well, let me have that experience Mm -hmm. because I'm counseling people to avoid the draft. So it was, you know, all of that was, especially the last year or year and a half of college was incredibly, it was ever present and very tense. It's hard to imagine what it would be like, but that's another place in your book where it really um, just really helps give the reader a sense of, what that period was like for somebody of that age. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, have a, you have a great book of essays um, that it's in my bookshelf, 2014 in a new century. And um, in one of, the, one of the essays, you say that two of the themes of the founding texts of U.S. gay and lesbian history are resistance and gays and lesbians being heroes of their own lives. And, you know, when you look back at yourself as a younger person back in those days, how do you see those themes going through your own life? Oh, wow. That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Um, Well, I mean, certainly um, resistance emerges in that I ultimately refused to accept the condemnation and self-condemnation, which I had internalized about 
sexu- sexuality uh, through my religious upbringing and the entire environment in which the entire social environment in which I grew up. And while I wasn't yet a, quote, gay activist at this period of my life, to simply be able to say, this is who I am and resolve to live that life was a form of resistance to everything that I was being taught and every piece of information that was coming at me in the culture. Um, And, uh, you know, so I guess in that sense, yeah, I mean, resistance, resistance to the internalizing the oppression of a homophobic society. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like that you and so many people, you know, had to be a hero of their own lives because you, you were facing such, such obstacles just in trying yeah. to be who you are. And we didn't, you know, prior to, uh, Stonewall and the rise of a really militant and increasingly visible, uh, LGBTQ movement, we didn't have the external examples of fighting back. It was something we had to figure out for ourselves how we were going to do it. And for many of us, it was therefore done on an individual basis. No support system at all, like like we, you know we have today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And when you said Stonewall, it made me it made me just wonder if if I've been to, I've been to Stonewall, I, I don't, you mentioned another bar that I didn't, I think you said that there was a court order. The police couldn't raid it. And that, that really surprised me. Right. Um, there was, um, uh, there's a bar in New York and it still exists actually, oh, wow. you know, 60 okay. years later, uh, it's called Julius. Julius uh, it's in right. Greenwich village and it's not far from where the Stonewall Inn was. Yeah. And a group of, um, what were called in those days in the 60s, homophile activists, um, went to the bar and announced that they were homosexual. And at that point, it had been policy in New York State to close bars that served homosexuals. And this protest led to a change in policy that you we you the police couldn't automatically or the state couldn't automatically revoke a liquor license because the bar served homosexuals wow but that didn't stop the police from choosing to raid bars on oh. charges of say disorderly conduct Okay. Uh, or sexual impropriety, or things like that. Okay, okay, that's that's so interesting. What was it like? I don't know. You know, when you when you went into that the bar that you mentioned early on, what did you know compared to what it's like today to go into a gay bar? Well, at that point, it <laughs> first of all, I had never been in a space with so many other gay men yeah, before, yeah. and that was a shock, and. It made me completely nervous, not yeah, nervous yeah. because the police are going to arrest me and I'll go to jail, but nervous as what am I supposed to do? Will anybody notice me? Do I look good enough? Yeah, am I attractive? Yeah. 
And so bars actually became a so a different source of deep anxiety in uh, yeah, my young yeah. life. Yep. I remember feeling that in the 80s myself. So, but, <laughs> but it was a different – of course, you still have the police to worry about when, you're, when, you, when you were going in. True. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, well, how did you decide where to end the book? And, and I guess a follow-up question is I found myself wondering if you ever came out to your parents and how it went. Okay. Well, to, as to the Two first part yeah. – yeah, as to the first part, I end the book a year after I graduated from college. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do after college. I just applied for jobs. I got a job at a library, and during that year, reading the work that was that I had to process in the library, I suddenly realized, oh my God, people are writing a, a new kind of U.S. history that can be a force for social change. This is what I want to do. And so I decide to go to graduate school and study mm -hmm. U.S. history. And so I end the book at the point at which I begin graduate school uh, in 1971, because that really puts me on the path that with twists and turns I've followed for the last you know, 50, 50 or so years. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of my parents, uh, <clears throat> if I do write volume two. Okay, good. I was going to ask I, you that. I yeah. will, I, excuse me. <clears throat> I, I will write the story of coming out to them. I came out to them at the point in graduate school where I decided that I was actually going to do, quote, gay history. Uh, okay. And I thought, oh my God, how am I going to keep from them for the next five years what it is that I'm working on? And so that became the motivation or the requirement, you could say, that I figure out how to come out to them. Yeah. I, do do, I do it gradually, and then it happens, and it's very dramatic. But oh, as, I put it, as I put it over time – it became clear that my parents were more Italian than Catholic. In other <laughs> words, family was more important than anything uh, else, and they were never going to reject their son. Ah, uh, yeah. So it was yeah, quite I, wonderful. I was laughing a little bit because I remember the place in the book when you um, you break it to them that you're considering religious studies and the reaction. So I'm just, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's great. I love it. Um well, then the last question, I was going to ask you if you have another book plan, but I guess the last question is, um, what do you hope that queer people coming of age today will take from your story? Well, I, one, I hope they'll, it serves as a reminder of, despite the struggles that we're facing today, and the struggles are real, you know, like don't say gay laws mm, and yeah, book yeah. banning and violence against trans youth and things like yeah, that. Yeah. Despite the struggles, we have come a long way in the last 50 plus years. And we've done that because people have stood up and refused to internalize the oppression. And I hope that's a message for everyone, that we can make decisions in our own lives mm. that help change not only our own lives, but the world around us. That's beautiful. I love that. Thanks for that. Um, well, believe it or not, we've come to the end of our interview, and I okay. just want to thank you so much again for um, for joining me today. Well, and thank you for enjoying the book and 
wanting to interview me. I really appreciate it. Yes. And to our listeners, if you are interested in reading Memories of a Gay Catholic Boyhood, click on the highlighted title of the book in the description included with this podcast. And join us again next time for Queer Voices on the New Books Network.